Hey guys, welcome to the final episode of, not the festival, don't worry, don't be scared. There's a lot more panels (laughs) from the festival. There's so many coming your way. But this is the final episode of the six episode track presented by The Syndication Project. And I'm Emily. I'm Caitlin. And we are your TV Campfire co-host, co-founders, co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival, anything that starts with co. I'm just going to start adding co onto every every list, everything I identify with. You guys, I don't even know what co means at this point. It's like when you say like the, like a word over and over again and it loses all meaning. It means you have to do everything with me. Oh, should we start saying everything in unison? <laughs> yes. <laughs> One, two, three. This Hello. Panel. No, oh, damn We it. already fell. We already missed. <laughs> this panel was presented by the Television Academy. We are so honored, honestly, that they have been our partners for a few years. But this is presented by the Television Academy and is moderated by the lovely and wonderful Lindsay Scola, Director of Talent and Public Relations. So this is the third year that we've done this particular panel with them. Always different panelists, obviously. But it focuses on the role of storytelling on TV, how it can push the norm, challenge beliefs, and ultimately move the social needle by presenting audiences with different points of view while also being entertaining. And you've heard us say over and over and over and over and over and over and over (laughs) again how much we believe in the power of storytelling and that television can really be the strongest medium to incite that change. And I think even releasing this as the sixth and final one of the track is important because it kind of encompasses everything that's come before it, that whatever the representation is. Television is an extremely intimate medium. I mean, you invite these people into your living room. You're not going to a movie theater. It's your home. You're often watching alone with a small group of people, your family, your friends. And through that, you're going to change your point of view a little bit on a person or a situation. Yeah, you watch these characters that are so different from who you are and probably anyone that you've met. And they're going through things that you may never go through or if you do. You've now met someone that you care deeply about and in caring deeply about this stranger that's completely someone you've never come across that then I truly believe transfers out into the real world. And again, bears repeating, we don't believe that TV should ever be used as a teaching tool. But if a story is well told, then the awareness and understanding of that different culture, belief, social issue, person just naturally comes with it. Have we mentioned lately how much we love TV? I'm thinking they've probably figured that out by now. Which is so great. <laughs> yeah. You guys were kind of passionate about it. Wouldn't it be sad if we weren't? If we spent all of our time talking about it and we're like, ugh, TV. I really love music. TV is so dumb. I mean, There's no point music, to it. FYI. No, you don't. Um, no movies, no music. All we do is watch TV all day. Uh, <laughs> that was only our lives. Oh, my God. So sad. Uh, coming back, back around. around. Oh, look, oh, we did it. That was amazing. <laughs> was not planned. Was not planned. Um... <laughs> Without further ado, here is Powerful TV presented by the Television Academy. High five. It's a really good festival when you can lose your voice like that. It's a lot of uh, dedication and commitment right there. as, as Caitlin said, uh, this is the third year that the Television Academy is partnering, and we couldn't be more proud. Uh, this is a really incredible festival with uh, some of the, the best, most committed television fans out here and uh, the creators that are doing really, really important work. And so we're just super proud to be here. And Caitlin and Emily are both amazing humans that, that put this together. So in 2018, we find ourselves in a world that's becoming increasingly more divided and more political in an extremely personal way. But we also find ourselves in a new golden age of television with more outlets, more money, and more opportunity uh, than ever before to tell the stories that are on the minds of everyday Americans. However, with this opportunity, what's the obligation to share these social issues? The creators you're going to hear from today have excelled at incorporating storylines that move us, make us think, and challenge our beliefs. So I want to ask the question, can TV be both entertaining and push social norms? And if it can, can they enhance each other? So without further ado, I would love to introduce 
the creator and executive producer of One Day at a Time, Gloria calderon Kellett. The creator and executive producer of Vida, Tanya Siracho. The writer and creator of The Long Road Home, Miko Alon. Actor and director from some of our favorites, 30-something, The West Wing, and Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, Timothy Busfield. So when I was preparing for this panel, I started to make a list of all of the issues that you all have taken on in your programming. And when I got to about page seven, I oh thought God. that I might need to hone it down and that was just on one day at a time. So <laughs> I wanna talk about some of the, the really specific issues uh, that you all have, uh, have, have worked on and then sort of get to a bigger question of how basically all of you are saving the world. So, uh, no pressure. Um, Why are you so far away? But just, I no think borders. you guys do no like walls. each other. We do. Yeah. There you go. Well, now we're too close. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. They were fighting really bad backstage, I promise. Um, so, I want to start with veterans. Um, with long road, uh, the wrong, long road home and one day at a time. Um, so really often in television, we see, or, or film for that matter, we see veterans as being heroes in the field or struggling once they've come home and we don't see anything in between. And I want to talk about how television is telling those stories and what stories we need to tell more. And specifically, uh, both of you have scenes uh, where either Thomas Young in The Long Road Home um, is dealing with his injuries from war or where Penelope is trying to fight with the VA to get her care. Um, what, are, what messages are you guys trying to tell in those and how is this helping us sort of understand the state of um, veterans care in our country? Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, Norman was, Norman Lear was, uh, is a veteran and he flew 52 combat missions in World War II. He's a pretty incredible guy. But he often talked about uh, how war was different for him. You know, he was in a plane and shooting. He was not on the ground. And he still is very active with, with veterans and says that the experience that they're having now is just so very different. And we have veteran consultants on the show. And they came in and were telling us about the VA and the issues that they experience when they return. And they actually said, they told us the story. The story in, in that episode is a real story of a veteran that finally was able to get through. And then the, the person at the VA had to take a bus and said they couldn't help them. Uh, and so we really felt like, well, this is something that we should cover. This is, these are people that are literally fighting for our freedom. Many times women and people of color that are out there uh, that are struggling, that, that join the military to get educated. And so it felt like a really important daily thing that I knew nothing about. They educate me so much. So to be able to, to tell that story and try to do it with humor, yeah. um, you know, felt like a, a way of letting people know that this is a thing that exists. Um, I wanted to just first say, you know, it took me nine years to get the Long Road Home made. But I still remember when I uh, first read the book by Martha Raddatz, one of the most fascinating things about it was that she really focused it on not just the soldiers, but the families. And I felt like watching the incredible struggles of, it's really a story about what it's like to go to war for the first time and the sort of harrowing chaos and terror and intimacy of that and what families go through. I felt like I'd never read that. In some ways, I feel like all the things that our soldiers and veterans struggle with are really invisible to society. If you think about this, only about half a percent uh, of our population one half of 1% is active duty military. And I think there is this great divide where, um, as Thomas Young says in our show, nobody sees them. Um, and one of the things we wanted to do with the show was illuminate both what the experience of war is like. I interviewed probably close to 70 um, soldiers and families. And I was struck by most of all, by misconceptions that we have about PTSD. But I think one of the central 
origins, there's two things. Um, one is how profoundly the act of killing uh, affects you and changes you. Um, it was very haunting to hear Carl Wilde, one of our veterans, um, said to me that he feels in some ways closer to the people he killed in Iraq than anyone in his life. And that anyone who says you're not changed by that action is lying. And I think PTSD is often, I think, misportrayed as these sort of violent episodes and, and terror when I think that the, the vast majority of veterans, the main thing that they, they struggle with is depression and, um, and a profound sort of sense of loss of identity because we don't really give veterans opportunities to, to find a path in society. Thomas Young's brother um, told me when he left the army, he was told he has no skills. And yet he's led men in combat, had to, has had to make really difficult strategic and tactical decisions. And, I, and these were all the things that I feel like we wanted to illuminate all of that, which is invisible, and particularly, you know, help people understand what our nation's military families go through, not just after deployment, but every day. Because, you know, we all struggle with, say, separation from our spouses when, when you know, they travel, but they're usually not gone for a year in mortal danger the whole time. So that was one of our main things, was to try to impart some understanding to audiences of, of all that they go through. And you talked about PTSD. I think uh, with the really tragic news of this week, it would be remiss to, to not bring up how we're talking about this on television. But this is something you're also grappling with on One Day at a Time. And how do you show this in a way that shows people that it's, one, okay to get treatment, but two, that this is something that's manageable, and so employers or anybody else shouldn't be afraid of it from, from their employees that are veterans? I mean, I will just say this. You know, we had we worked very closely with the veterans of the real-life battle in uh, recreating things. We had two veterans, um, Eric Berkwin and Aaron Fowler. Eric was a part of the platoon that was pinned down. Um, Aaron was one of the rescuers, and it was incredible. I mean, it's incredibly traumatic material for them to relive, but they did it because um, they wanted the you know world to know what they had been through. And I will say, if they can do that, uh, there's nothing they can't do. And uh, I do think that, especially our industry, uh, owes veterans an opportunity because I feel like they have lived through things and experienced things and have perspectives that we will never have. As much as we can try to understand, we don't truly do. Like, that's one of the things I learned about them, but they are, you know, so incredibly resilient. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about Thomas Young's uh, story, too, is that he struggled, obviously, with uh, depression and, and loss of purpose, but found activism as a tool of hope. So I think there is, you know, if people are struggling, they just, just reach out. You know, there is help. And same. I mean, we we uh, we portray a veteran support group on our show, which we thought was really important. And the extras are actual female veterans. Uh, so we get to hear from them how they're coping, each of their coping mechanisms and what they're sort of doing to get back into civilian life. You know, basic things like Fourth of July is a is a killer for a veteran because it puts them right back there and often really triggers them. Uh, so things that we can be aware of that I think people don't think about. Yeah. Uh, so here's Fourth of July, the Day of Freedom, and we are and we are doing all these explosives that put these people. And sometimes they're, you know, one of our veteran females told us about being in traffic can cause her anxiety because when she was in a car in Iraq and it's you're a sitting duck and there's cars all around you, you can't get out. And so she, that will trigger her. And so talking about it, we also talk about medication on our show. We talk about meditation. We talk about various things that, especially in communities of color, you know, things like therapy and medication are very taboo still. So to be able to see this woman who is kicking ass in her life, is a mother, is a nurse, is a loving daughter, is thriving. And then we did an episode in season two where she went off of her medication and stopped going to therapy. And we see what that looked like for her and talked about it in a way that, that we felt would be responsible, would let people know that this can be the journey of a loved one. And the outreach that we got after that episode was unbelievable from people who suffer and also from people who love people who suffer so that they had a better understanding of what their loved one was going through. So I think humanizing these things and talking about them really allows people to understand and, and it builds a bridge towards understanding. And it doesn't take away from the story. Um, Timothy, you spent time in the military. Do you, have, do you have thoughts about how this is portrayed on television or how we've changed the way that we've portrayed this on television? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, we grew up, I grew up 
my dad was in uh, uh, the Marines. Uh, he based here, actually, when he was in school uh, during World War II. And I was, you know, a, a patriot growing up because my dad and there were the books around and all the books of all the uniforms of all the soldiers and everything. And uh, I needed the, I didn't want to ask my parents for anything. So I went into the Navy and got the GI Bill. I went to college on the GI Bill. I was stationed in San Diego and it was 1975. I went in and 1976, I got to San Diego and I because of my job, was able to live off base uh, at a very low rank uh, because I handed out, I was part of the department, the personnel department that handed out the off base housing. So we, <laughs> <laughs> we had nice perks uh, starting off. So I chose to live in the hippie commune of Ocean Beach. Uh, and I was clearly in the military and they did not like me. Uh, they called me swabby. They would spit on me. They would call me names because the reputation coming out of World War II was not, uh, uh, it, there was no patriotism really. There was no coming home from Vietnam. There were the people I worked with and coming off and being a part of the Vietnam era uh, and having gone in in 1975, right at the, when we were at the final guys leaving Sa uh, Saigon. Um, it was not, it wasn't cool. Uh, and it was looked, down upon. And if you look at the Ken Burns documentary, you realize there's good reason for a lot of the people to feel the, the lies that were going on. We shouldn't have been there. We shouldn't have been in Vietnam. It was clear we shouldn't have been in Vietnam. So everything since Honolulu, right? That attack on Honolulu activated America and activated a, a military and all the propaganda films that came off of it and all the TV shows that were pro-military. Uh, kind of went away as we got involved in actions that had nothing to do with the United States. And people pulled back. They just didn't care. And so it's a, it now to actually deal with it is a very important thing. And on the night shift, uh, an episode I directed, written by Brian Anthony, who was a captain in the Marines and uh, in the Army, and um, uh, I directed it. And we had a lot of our, all of our guest actors were, had been in the military. And we really tried to examine, uh, uh, you know, it was a more romantic move by, by Brian. He wrote a beautiful script. But we had action sequences. And those action sequences with real vets, we had a couple of them that got really squirrely. Uh, it was very difficult for him. Uh, and one of them we had to, you know, he, he, uh, he expires. The character expires in, 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 the, in, the, in the thing. And he... Uh, he was struggling and having to direct that was very, very difficult for me and very empathetic for me. Um, I don't know how to get people involved and awaken them to the journey. I really don't. I don't know if what structure, you know, this was a doctor show that had a doctor show theme. You know, you're trying to deal with veteran issues, but you know, you've got somebody else with a piece of Tupperware in their lung or something like that, you know, and, the, and it, you know, I don't know how, how to do it. Uh, these guys, the fact that people are, are trying it. I don't know if you bury, try to get people involved with, uh, you know, about little issues or do you try to pound the big issues, which make people sometimes pull back? They just, Americans just don't want to know. And I don't know what it is. I just, they don't really care. So it's very difficult to activate empathy from someone who hasn't been in the military to the military cause unless they had parents that were in the military. Well, so you said, you know, do you have small issues or is it the whole thing? So you've got a show where this is about an entire military exercise and people coming home. And you have a show where this is one aspect of it. Um, so people aren't necessarily turning into one day at a time because they want to watch military issues. But is that one of the tools that when they're tuning in to see a certain content that you're giving them a dose of something else? So while they're watching a medical drama, does that help that you're getting something you weren't necessarily signed up for when you, when you click the remote? I mean, I think I think for us, uh, uh, something else that really moved me. I went to uh, Got Your Six. They have a a ceremony in Los Angeles. You can go online and and look it up. And I went, and they were talking about what you were saying, which is their representation is the hero or the struggling, you know, PTS veteran at home. 
And it really struck me because I feel as a Latina that that's, that they're, that I've only been marginalized in certain ways on television. So I felt a kinship with them. Uh, so for me, it was like, oh my gosh, that's how I feel too. So when Norman brought this up, it was like, yeah, I just was at this thing. So absolutely. So I think it is a, a matter of talking about it and including, you know, what, what Got Your Six was really trying to get us to say is, hey, if there's a neighbor on the sitcom, make the neighbor a veteran so that, and it doesn't have to come up all the time, but it can be something that we can see and we can start to normalize. Because really it's about humanizing and normalizing. Right. That's everything that we're trying to do is humanizing and normalizing. Uh, so that people feel a little bit seen and a little bit more understood and Americans aren't so freaked out to talk yeah. about it. Right. Um, I mean, I also think that maybe too much of how Hollywood portrays war are stories about special forces and special forces missions. Like what drew me to this story that it was about ordinary military families, the ones that make up the actual vast majority of our armed forces. These were not super soldiers. They were ordinary guys and just ordinary families, people who had joined for uh, various reasons. And, you know, even though our story is about one specific day in the Iraq war when everything changed and the lives of these people changed, I think of it really as a, as a family story and as a character story as a love story more than a war in the kind of a traditional war drama because I think there is something so um, you know for the average American all these experiences seem to exist in a separate universe because they're not our experiences but for these families it's, it's a daily reality and it was incredible to go to the homes of gold star families where you would see, you know, in, in one case, uh, Robert Arciaga, who was one of the soldiers who was uh, killed in this battle, um, the living room of his mother's house is a shrine to now two sons that she has uh, lost to war. And they were so warm and welcoming. And this was true of all the families. And I remember meeting some of them for the first time. And it, for me, really broke a lot of preconceptions of what I thought soldiers were like. You would meet these incredibly cerebral, cerebral warm, um, you know, funny guys, and they would tell stories, war stories that were both hilariously funny and terrifying. And and I remember thinking, wow, considering everything that you've been through, you you seem completely well adjusted. And then something haunting would happen. And I feel like the more we can illuminate the human experience, the more it becomes our collective, you know, American experience. I thought it was really well done in the in the in the Ken Burns. I mean, it's so it's. The I mean, I, anybody who's dedicated to this, you know, I give you kudos to do it. And Ken Burns, uh, in his documentary, what I thought was so fascinating is you actually got a chance to look at who we were fighting and their stories and how they dealt with their PTSD and what it was like coming back, you know, uh, uh, you know, and their feelings about the Americans and our feelings about them. And it really gave a juxtaposition, which is fascinating. I don't know how many of you saw Ken Burns' documentary, but it was really great because we had a chance to actually gauge our own veterans against the veterans of the enemy. And then at the end, you see them come together and actually meet each other. And there was love there. Wow. There was tremendous love between the two. It was really a fantastic, because of what they'd been through, against each other and seeing them hug, you know, interviews with these guys. And, you know, I, it, 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 there's so many, if you want to have impact, emotional impact in television and in films and really have people change in their point of view, you have to be very brazen and you have to be completely Norman Lear. I mean, you have to be willing to get fired every day uh, to do that job. You have to make, to make a good show anyway, you have to be willing to get fired every day uh, because the network and the studio is looking at numbers and you're looking at people and they aren't really looking at the people, they're looking at numbers yeah. and numbers of people. And you actually are thinking about how to change people and how to, for people to evolve. And they don't necessarily work together at stars uh, uh, and some of the, uh, the cable networks are our best opportunity. I don't know if on primetime uh, uh, network television will ever be able to truly awaken anybody, you know, very difficult. West Wing, Aaron Sorkin was willing to get fired every day and did not take any notes from anybody except for Tommy Shlami and John Wells occasionally. That was it. I take notes from those guys. Yeah, it was it was a good group. But but you can't 30 something. Those guys never took notes from yeah. the network. And, and it was very it's difficult, very difficult to 
you know, you have to be doing it the way these guys are doing it at National Geographic, at where are you? Netflix. At Netflix and Stars. So are- I want to talk about that though. So you're at Stars and you're at Netflix. And um, five, six years ago, I'm hard pressed to come up with a Latino family show on television. And now we have two. Um, they kept trying. They kept trying. Like, yeah, I'm not Kane, and but yeah, they kept yeah, like right. one season. Yeah, they would not last. Yeah, yeah. I but, did like I did my own little uh, unofficial study when we were waiting to get picked up, and in the last 20 years, there have been 27 that I could find Latino-led shows about Latino families. Four of those got a third season. Wow. wow. Well, so but you have yeah. congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> And not only are these uh, Latino shows, but you have introduced us to the term Latinx, which I loved that which episode. Which I learned from Tanya. I learned it from Tanya, man. She made me real woke. Talk, talk me about <laughs> waking me up. Talk about education. That episode, I was like, all right, I got it now. Nice. Um, but you're you're dealing with a Cuban family. You're dealing with a Mexican family. And... I think we had some misconceptions before that anytime we see a Latino family on television, it is a strict family unit where there's a mother and a father and the kids. And uh, both your families are dealing with issues that are, are not that. Um, and yeah. how important is it to be able to not see people as a block when we are, are able to, to show other cultures at, on television? Just Well, that's not our gaze of ourselves, right? That's, the dominant gaze, they have like, um, gaze is what I mean. Yeah. My accent. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the other one later. Yeah. My, my immigrant accent comes out. <laughs> gaze. Um, it, it, that's when they look down at us and, and, and have put us in the, you know, this stereotype, this stereotype. And, and they kept trying to fit that. But it, when you let us handle our narratives, it's, it's not going to look like that. It's going to look like true to life, you know, more, um, complicated the way we really are. So I think that that's because the, uh, it's who's been handling our narratives before. Um, and also from the top, like what versions that, um, because when you're saying the people who have to support this, they're the people at the top, they have to like buy into that world. And if they're like, well, I don't think that there are, the, you know, it's what, it's the scope of their understanding of us, which is really dangerous because a lot of the times they only have seen us, like they only engage with us in a certain ways. You know, I'm talking about the people who give us the money and the green light, um, so it's, yeah, it's complicated when, you know. Yeah. So on that, sort of a chicken and the egg problem yeah. then, uh, do you change this by introducing the stories? Therefore, you get different writers into the room, you get different people on the projects, or do you have to change the executives and the writers first before you start getting the stories? I think it starts with us. I think we both understand the importance of us being there. And we've talked about, like, we can't do all the panels. We got to create more people. Yeah. Because we can't do all the panels. I'm so tired. We're so tired. <laughs> we got to create some more, like, Latina women. You, you, you guys are, are quite, like, on yes. the road show right now yes. together. I yes. love it, though. No, we love it. We love no, it. It's the only time we get to see I each know. other, so we love it. We you love live it. on the west side. So I know, and you're all the way. I don't, I don't travel past yeah. La Cienega. I'm like, I can't. I can't. Let's and that 405 okay. divide is real. <laughs> uh, no, we're really, I, I think that, that what I'd love to see actually from all showrunners, but the the showrunners that I had, I had some, Carter and Craig on How I Met Your Mother were very supportive of me being interested in everything. And so I really credit them in allowing me to edit and cast and produce my episodes. That was really the only show that let me do that. And I would, on our show, I ha- I want to create showrunners. I want the, our, our queer and Latinx and white and Jewish and you know, uh, room to all become showrunners when they leave our show. So we allow them to produce the episodes. They're involved in casting. If they'd like to be, they can go into editing, uh, on the floor, you know, they can look at cuts and have notes on cuts if they'd like, uh, just to practice that process because we're trying to build more. That really is a huge part of it because it does start with the narrative. I mean, I got to walk through the set. One of the things the, the designers, whenever they're, (laughs) they're doing a lot, my house, our walls were white. The walls were white in my house. Every Latino family, it's like a rainbow exploded. (laughs) When you walk, I'm like, what is this? So the first thing is my production designer is, it can be colorful, but like, let's not go crazy. 
And I walked through the kitchen and I told them like what foods to buy to put in the pantry. Right. Like I, a, a bustelo has to be there. We got to have a, a cafetera on the, on the thing because there's always a cafetera. Like I walked through and those details are the things that people see and make them feel seen. The amount of people that have told me about the mantequilla, it's a butter tin mm -hmm. that we put our food in because mm -hmm. why would you pay yeah. for Tupperware, you guys? <laughs> what are you doing? White people, you have Tupperware. You're buying it right now. You're throwing it in the recycling. What are you doing? The thing that the turkey comes in, better wash that and use it again. What are you doing? So the amount of people that said the butter tin, oh my God. And that's immigrant families, not just Latino families. Yeah. Immigrant families are like, oh my God, my grandma used to do that or my mom does that. It's those little things that make people feel seen. Well, because they haven't seen them and they haven't... Yeah. Um, ever been represented that way. We we have a lot of terminology, um, yes, Latinx and, and stuff, but like pocho, like that, that term pocha got thrown around the first episode and we had like, I hadn't heard pocha's a Spanglish, but it's very specifically Mexican-American. Okay, yeah. No. I don't know pocha. It's not. And it used to be uh, a term that uh, Mexican nationals, uh, like me, used to say, like, it was it was not a nice thing to say, you know, <laughs> but now we're taking it back. And so we're like, I am a butcher. So it's like the whole thing. And and watching that in just one little couplet um, was really because I'd never heard the term pocha, chingona, um, uh, carnala, um, all those things. And those are very Mexican-American things. And and the thing is that when when you're tongue is missing from the national narrative it, it's erasure you know it's, yeah. it's like you don't exist yeah, um so so that has been exciting to be able to throw those like those little nuggets of code yeah. switching to be like those yeah. are for you you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know but also you know it's also it was, for it was everyone because i had i had uh, somebody say coño which is like a really bad word in cuban spanish and netflix didn't know what that meant so they allowed it <laughs> We had puta, and and they and they um, even put it in the because the censors didn't know what puta meant, and they put it in the first trailer, and I was like, <laughs> and then people were like, oh, that's a horrible word, and I was like, oh, I thought you knew, you know, but it was like, I mean, be bilingual, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, my high school Spanish didn't cover that one. Um, but talking about code switching, though, I mean, this is something that you're trying to do not just in the language of the show, though. So can you talk about from your writer's room to the art on the show to even your cinematographer? I know I, I talk about this a lot because I'm so proud about this because there's a conversation that, um, well, right now they're tr trying to get us to use the inclusivity uh, writer. Um, but like we... We, we, do so we do it already, <laughs> yeah. so we don't have to. Like, all my department heads are female. Um, my cinematographer, my casting director, my composer, who was um, here this weekend, um, my um, uh, uh, editors, all Latinas, you know, and not all of them have had this shot before as I had not had this shot before, you know, like, so this is my first time. So like if somebody's going to take a shot on me, then I'm going to do the same thing. My cinematographer had never run a unit and that's like 36 people. She has to be at the helm. And we also, we shoot in the street, we shoot in Heights, we shoot, you know, so it's like a little indie that we, we, we do for however many months. Um, and that, and that was, I mean, there was a lot of growing pains because a lot of us first time, but now there's a Latina cinematographer that has a show under her belt. And that's really that's amazing, you know? And then my writer's room is all Latinx. There's one cis male and the rest are um, are uh, female identified people and mostly queer. And that's exciting too, because when we're writing that show, now we didn't set off to be like, I'm writing a queer show, but the queerness is steeped, well, in me and in the, the room that it's going to be Right, so those sex scenes are going to be very workshopped in the room. We have um, <laughs> we have a um, a Frida like puppet, and a Frida, and then we have a um, Oscar Wilde puppet, and we'd be like, so like, like when she face squats on her, like that, that and then we, and we like we seriously like, we, and we have all the queer girls being like, no, that is too like we all have very that we workshop the shit out of that scene, you know, <laughs> because Tim's we have to get just it. Kicked in. <laughs> yeah. To get it right because by the way one of my writers yes, is who was in that scene i, I was like <laughs> she stole um, one of my my beautiful I, writer because i i came to your uh, i mean i i paid attention to your whole room but then i came to um one of your um uh they don't call them sure. shoot, shoots yeah, yeah shoots yeah, yeah. we okay. shoot in front of a live audience yeah. so, so it was like theater it was amazing um <laughs> It's amazing. Oh, Hussein Machado was in the audience. It's a revelation. I, I, I'm the biggest fan. Anyway, um, it, it was the finale too. So I was like, oh, it was so good. Um, 
Side note, sorry. Um, ¿Qué estaba diciendo? <laughs> face squat. You were doing face squat. Oh, yes. And I was, I was, no, because um, Michelle Vadillo, a writer, is she, uh, she's like uh, genderqueer presenting. And I didn't know how she identified. Now no, her she, pronouns yeah. are she. No, but I didn't. So she read non-binary genderqueer to me. And I was like, we need that aesthetic because we have a non-binary actor in our show, you know, uh, who pronouns they, them. Um, and I was like, I need them, um, her, you know to have breasts and be masculine of center, you know, on the show to show that queerness. And it was, it's a really hot scene. It's really, yeah, yeah. I want to build on this. Okay, so you were on 30 something. Uh -huh. And <laughs> and in 1989, you all had an episode called Strangers. Right. Um, where it's the first time we see two men in bed together. Right. And they didn't touch each other, but it was a big uproar. And, you know, people pulled, sponsors pulled funding. Right. ABC took it out of syndication. And 30 years forward, we're talking about an Face accurate description. Wow. Yeah. That. Well, yeah, it was, um, the, 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 was there a specific? Did I cut you <laughs> off? I'm sorry. I, well, so I, I want to talk about, though, you know, we, we have sort of 30 years here right. where we're talking about LGBTQ issues on television and sort of what that's meant and how television sort of pushed that narrative. Well, and where do we go from here? Well, it's that's it's really it's a uh, it's a great topic. Not only was I a part of that, I also directed the pilot of the Fosters uh, for ABC Family, thank you. And directed the, the first two episodes and, you know, set the look of that show and, and you know, battled a little bit with the, the creators of the show on how best to get the audience on board in, for the show and how best to, I knew I was like to, uh, and these guys are brilliant, Peter and, and Brad, and they hadn't done a TV show yet. They hadn't done a, uh, uh, they'd done one before and they chose me to, to be the guy and uh the the delicacy was how do we get to which i said 100 episodes which we got to we got to yeah. 100 episodes and how are we going to get this to 100 episodes and you're dealing with abc family which is to me a red state network abc nbc cbs abc family they all have standards and practices and anywhere where there's standards and practices is to me uh, are driven by a lot more of the moral majority, the Christian, the right, is their fears come uh, because of that, that, that group. Uh, and the affiliates in around the country that weigh in and, and encourage buying programming and the news, really. Uh, uh, who's going to tune in to Shreveport, 11 o'clock news in Shreveport uh, after a, a, you know, an ABC show ends? Have you lost audience? Then the affiliates call and say to the head of ABC, it was Bob Iger, when we did that in 1989, and say, we're pulling, we're not going to air the show, uh, just like they did with Hill Street Blues when they had Dennis France, you saw his butt in a shower, right? So dealing in those days with a network audience and what I'm calling a red state audience or even the Fosters, and there was a kissing scene between uh, uh, Terry Polo and Sherry Somm in the pilot. And I kept saying to the writers, you gotta give me a reason for the kiss other than that you can do it, right? There has to be an organic, it, 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 we can't, you can't just throw it at people for the sake of going, look what we can do now. It needs to feel like everybody would be kissing, like a heterosexual couple would be kissing or all, there has to be that honesty in it. Um, and my pitch was more a good night kiss, uh, rather than let's make out, which, and boy, let me tell you, Brad Bredewig shot a kissing, uh, the best kiss I've ever seen on TV with the girls, uh, in season four. Uh, it was brilliant, uh, uh, the way he shot that scene, but it was the delicacy of, we have you now we're you're in our backyard. We have you with us on the show. How best do we keep you leaning in for uh, uh, we're at that point we can do that now, which is what you're seeing, especially at Netflix and places like that. When 30-something was there, the, the leap forward that they went through and the standards and practices guy, the head of standards and practices, told Ed Zwick, ABC is totally okay with uh, a, a homosexual couple on TV. We're totally okay with a homosexual couple being in bed. With two men in bed, we have no problem with that. But we'll never have 
uh, uh, a homosexual couple uh, uh, making out and, and kissing in a bed uh, in 1989. And now we've come so far because their fear was standards and practices, the affiliates would pull out. And when the affiliates pull out, the pressure on the network executives is gigantic. But because of Netflix and because of uh, so many streaming networks, we can really go after that audience now and, and make sure that they understand that all people are the same and that it doesn't matter what your color is or what your gender is, that we're all the same. Uh, and we can make leaps forward like, like these folks are doing, particularly these ladies are doing. It's really spectacular. But I think you've had leaps forward on broadcast now, too. I mean, uh, For the People has a lesbian couple that they start every morning making out in bed. Um, and Will and Grace came back. And so I think we've had a lot of those leaps. But so you talked about... I did about a pilot this year for CBS. Okay. And it was really interesting because with Netflix, we also get time. You know, mm -hmm. our shows are 30 minutes long, 28 minutes. Mm -hmm. So for a multi-camera sitcom on broadcast, that's 20 minutes. So I shot a pilot with a Latino family and I had, and a young, I wanted to sort of portray my experience. I'm married to a real cute white guy. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, I love how much he has adopted uh, my culture and I've adopted his. My, I, I realized my daughter's 10 and I was like, we got to get stuff for, for uh, you know, it's March, St. Patrick's Day because you guys are Irish. And they're like, we thought we were just Cuban. I'm like, I'm sorry. You are also, I, I know I lean, lean a lot on the Cuban stuff. Also Irish. Um, so I wanted to do something about that because I see a lot of couples, uh, Blackish is about a black couple and Fresh Out the Boat is about an Asian American couple. And I thought, well, we're also really mixed. So I wanted to show that on network television. And I wanted to do a whole thing. It's, it's all friends of color. It was a, a, a group of people of color that were friends, white people and people of color. We coexist together and like each other. And I wanted to do a, a thing about dating when you're the first, when you're, uh, when you date your first white guy, there's things you must teach them, right? <laughs> so we, and then the black guy's like, oh my God, when I dated my first white girl, there's things, that, and we were doing a fun, that was what I wanted to do in the pilot was this conversation about the f teaching the first. They would not let me do that in the pilot. Really? Really. And the reason why is what Tim was saying. They said, we know our audience. We want th this, this group of characters is a wonderful, loving group of characters. There's also Latino parents that are very loving in a committed, loving relationship, which poor Latino men are never portrayed as loving, good fathers on television, and I really wanted to show that. They said, you can do that episode five or six. First, we need people to like. We know our audience. They're going to see you guys and go, Ugh, we got to like you first. And then in episode six, you can do that. No, we got to make you user-friendly first. Yeah. And like take all the edge. And, so, and not the reality. Not so at least they was, let you do it. I don't know if that's such a bad call. I really don't. Well, that I did to it. me I, is I gave to, into it and then they didn't pick it up anyway. Well, well so. I, I mean, I think, I <laughs> but, think that the goal of getting an audience to lean into your project, you can't go... You for know, network, it's like for network. anywhere, really, you, you, I think in anywhere I've directed, produced uh, so many plays and TV shows. There's, you know, so an actor once told me uh, an audience should be treated like treated like catching fish with your with your bare hands. You don't want to go jamming your hand in the water trying to catch the fish. Put your fingers in the water. Let them come up and nibble on your fingers <laughs> a little bit. Explore them. And then you grab the fish. And in storytelling. It when something when the audience doesn't participate uh, and teasing an audience is a very big part of storytelling. And the fact they weren't censoring it, they weren't saying you can't do it. Um, you know, I mean, they've come that far that, that they're saying, you know, yeah, it's delicate. You can't you know, that first episode in a pilot, too, yeah. is very, very important for committing. You're making a contract with the audience and they want to. You have to trust each other. You have to be, but you don't know. you have to promise? These are the colors, so we're gonna use the word cunt. We're gonna be uh, un unapologetically Latinx. We're not gonna be nice girl. Like if that's gonna be my show, don't you have to be like these are the colors you can expect? You know, uh, in the pilot. Sure, as long as the as long as you don't sacrifice their leaning in for the sake of, as long as you don't push them away. I you think it's you have great. A thought on this? The second you push them away, you've. It, it, and I'm not saying you don't introduce it, but what good have you done if you get if you can't run if you've push well, the audience back on their heels. I think I was just going to say, you know, I think we just have to be committed to telling those stories. Like I am, I'm gay. 
I'm also an immigrant, and I think particularly because I grew up gay watching American television, I was always acutely aware of the fact that I was never represented. So much like you, I was a first-time showrunner, and you know, I'm a big believer in that diversity begins in the writer's room. Like We're the first combat drama where half of our writing staff was women, because women are great writers. And I remember when we first asked uh, the agencies to send us samples, and I said, I particularly want women and women of color. It was all men. And I said, where are the women? And I remember one agent said, oh, that's right, because you guys deal with the home front and the family stuff. And I said, no, because women are great writers and some of the best, uh, you know, uh, incredible suspense, action, historical drama pieces were all written by women. And so I feel like, you know, I was very lucky to work at a network that's incredibly committed to diversity and views diversity as an asset. Um, just wanted to say this too, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, a story that has 60 potential characters. I wanted to tell the stories that aren't seen. So I'm very proud of the fact that uh, three of our eight principal soldiers and families are Latino because their stories, the stories of, in this case, ordinary specialists uh, and privates, and then one of the platoon leaders was Latino. They're never shown. It tends to be the white soldiers, the higher up commanders. And it was amazing. You know, I learned so much about, like, we had two Latino families, uh, single parents, one where the dad was the primary parent, one where the mom was the primary parent. And it was incredible to bring those stories. And the central way that we explore, for example, the loss of a soldier is through the experience of a Latino family. And I feel like I was... I just think all those things begin in the writer's room by having inviting diverse perspectives um, and creating that together. So I want to take on these last two themes that we've talked about here. So we've got the theme of seeing yourself on television. And I often hear from mostly performers that, you know, it was hard for me to identify with television as a kid, especially if you were of color, LGBTQ, because I didn't see myself there. So you've got people that need to see themselves on television. And then there's also this concept of the other. And so people that maybe became familiar with an LGBTQ character over the last 30 years, and that's changed their perception. How much of that goes into your thoughts uh, in the writer's room in terms of both of those audiences? I was on a show, I was writing for a show called Looking on HBO. And um, we had a character that was going to only be three um, episodes. Um, and uh, he happened to be, uh, Richie, he was um, uh, Mexican-American and queer. And... Um, then it ended up that he like was you know became a regular yeah um and i remember when we first started like hearing the feedback back like on twitter and stuff about the richie character that they had never seen because he was he had his shit together he wasn't a mess he was like acute and just wasn't crazy and they're like i, I i've never seen uh, like a brown queer that's not the joke, the butt of the jokes, or that live there for the, you know, Sullivan act, S's act, you know, for for laugh. And it was it was such it was such a powerful moment. I remember because the guy who played it is one of my best friends. Um, and we, the conversations we had about it because we went to theater school together. And I was like, the power of this medium to change perception is amazing when you haven't been re reflected ever. You know, you've never been represented like that because it was such a simple thing. The, ha the fact, it was so radical that he happened to be a good guy and brown and queer. It was so radical. But if you think about it, like we haven't been portrayed that much and then we haven't been portrayed positively. So the power of that affected a lot of how we, um, I, I, I took it, for, you know, to be that. Um, I have a masculine of central butch in it that, uh, you know, you hardly ever see a brown masculine central butch. And if you do, she's she's either violent or like there's a stereotype. She's in my show. She's the heart of the show. And she's soft and sweet and motherly, you know, and cooks. And so because it's, you know, real and that I feel like that's one of the most radical things we can do is just show us, you know, how we are. Simply because for us, when we were talking in the room, we have three queer writers on our staff. And they were talking about Mike Royce's daughter was coming out when we were doing season one of the show. And the show is so much based on my family. And he said, you know, I'd like some of my family. He's my partner. He's like, I'd, I'd love to, you know, could we make the daughter come out? And I was like, oh, my God, that would be amazing because it's something that we've never seen. So we sat with our queer writers and we were talking to them about their experiences and how they're coming out stories. And they were so thoughtful in, in sharing all of that with us. And they all said something that had never occurred to me as like a straight woman is that if there was a gay show, it'd be one gay show, right? Like the gay character comes in and does a gay thing and leaves. <laughs> 
And 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 they said the fact that over 13 episodes we get to see this young girl kind of question her sexuality. And then in another episode, she dates a boy. And there was a lot of conversation with the queer writers of like, do we want to see her identify her queerness through a man? And and you know, we we ended up doing that because that was Michelle's story, actually. Yeah. And uh and then and then to see her actually come out to her brother and then to her mother and then to her grandmother and then to her father. And that doesn't go so well. And the, it just never, I was like, Oh my God, growing up, I learned so much about relationships by watching straight couple. I learned so much. And I, it really moved me that like these women had nothing. These women had no representation of that when they were young girls. And also on network, they don't let you do gay stories under 18. You know, so this was an opportunity to make someone feel seen in that journey and the amount of feedback we've gotten from from kids who have come watched it with their parents and then come out to them and parents. And I mean, it it, it really was something so simple and just made for, a, I thought, a good story that I hadn't seen or heard before. But the feedback from that has been so tremendous that uh, it makes me very grateful and proud to to have been a part of that storyline. I just wanted to mention in our show, and I just speak to, I guess, you know, why, where you do your show matters so much. Like one of the things I knew I wanted to do, um, you know, over the course of our eight hours is to give a real portrait of the Iraqi side of the story, you know, so that the, often in these stories, like when people hear the premise of our show, they say, oh, it sounds like Black Hawk Down uh, in Iraq. And even though we share some things in common in terms of the um, terror, intimate terror of combat, there's not one recognizable human being that's always in my critique of Black Hawk Down on the other side. And I was determined that that was not going to be our show. So we have eight principal characters. One of them is the platoon's Iraqi interpreter. And our relationship as an audience sort of shifts from trust to suspicion. Um, and in the fifth episode, I said, I want to, because each of them kind of takes you into the backstory of the character. Um, I said, I want to uh, turn our point of view to the Iraqi side and do everything in Arabic with English subtitles. And oh, cool. I was um, amazing. Like, and this was, then the reaction from National Geographic was like, that's amazing. And uh, it was one of those things that I think people did not expect that our show would do. We also had, you know, a central role for the, the platoon becomes trapped with an Iraqi family. And I wanted them to have diverse perspectives, which of them were grateful for the, um, you know, toppling of Saddam Hussein, which of them hated the Americans. The soldiers had very conflicting relationships. and But ultimately, at its heart, it becomes for key characters about recognizing the essential humanity of the person you have viewed as the other. That's one of the things that was important to me that we, we shot because you never get to see Middle Eastern characters. And I remember our cast members said, uh, the members of the Iraqi family who had, because they were our rain cover set, in some ways they were for the entire duration of the shoot, they said often Middle Eastern actors feel like the outsiders and they're not really a part of the cast. And in my show, it was very important to me that everyone felt like family. And they said, we've never had this experience where we're integrated into the cast and we're all a part of this one big family. We all lived uh, on base in Fort Hood uh, for four months um, in base housing. Uh, so it was a really unique experience, but it was, you know, again, these are, I think, choices that we have as showrunners on what our sets are like, what our writer's rooms are like. Um, and hopefully we're blessed with good partners to make shows with. That's amazing. Uh, I want to get some audience questions in. Um, we have a microphone right here at the front. Anyone? All right. I mean, I could go for another two, three hours here, so. I haven't shut up all weekend that I am brown and proud and that it needs to be everywhere. And so, Tanya, you, you, you talk about something in Vida that I think nobody wants to talk about because we're ashamed of it, and it's the shame of assimilation. My mom's name is Maria, my dad's name is Jose, and they named me Jessica so that I could assimilate a lot easier than they did. And after Vida came out, I got my phone started blowing up. They're like, yo, we got a word for you. Waitina, you know? <laughs> Uh, I live in a white suburban neighborhood, and I like to call it the gentrification because another brown family just moved in. And um, my cousin actually reached out and said, look, I never realized what I was doing to you by making fun of the fact that you don't have an accent and you, you know, wear Lululemon or whatever is is as bad as it looks on TV. So how important was it for you to show not only very, like, 
brown and proud and out people, but people that have also assimilated into the culture that they were told to aspire to be, you know, how, how, how did you come about that subject and how important was it for you to show it? Well, stars, um, assigned me. So this wasn't my idea. I, I'm from South Texas. I am not from uh, East LA. Yeah, RGV, Rio Grande Valley. <laughs> um, uh, my sister's here, so see, RGV. Um, what was I gonna say? Um, I Yeah, so they were like, we want um, millennial female um, East side of LA um, about chipsters, Chicano hipsters, and <laughs> gentrification, just gentrification of a Latinx space by upwardly mobile Latinx. So that's what they, they gave me. Um, we were shooting a pilot presentation in Boyle Heights, and um, there's a, there, there are groups that, um, a, a group, one that's called Defend Boyle Heights. Boyle Heights is an, um, um, a neighborhood near, near East LA. Um, it's in East LA, but East LA is also its own town and neighborhood. It's a whole, uh, I don't understand LA yet. It's like, <laughs> is it a town? I mean, is it a neighborhood? It's both. It's always both. Um, but, um, but, but I just make up. West, oh, so I live in West Hollywood. I don't live in LA. You live in LA, but you live in West Hollywood. It's two different things, but it's the same thing. Anyway, sorry. Um, but so I, so I, we were shooting in, in Boyle Heights and defend Boyle Heights because I am not from Boyle Heights and I'm writing the show. Um, they caught wind of it because, you know, when you show up in a neighborhood with your production trucks, you take over blocks and it's very, it's very rude. Like, but there's no other way to do it but it's very you just take over so then that day so we started shooting at 7 a.m by 11 a.m they had screenshot my picture and put it everywhere online and called me a white tina coconut vendida sellout todas las cosas you know and i was like because i have a good pedigree in the theater um where we would like do social justice stuff i had an all latina theater company i had but i was like oh my god they don't they don't know i come in peace i come in peace you know <laughs> but i you know we were texting we were yeah, texting i was so i was really really upset because i was like because they i never heard the term white tina and i was like i did cry i was like cry and i was like oh, i have to put it in the show <laughs> And that day we like I took because it was something else in the show, and then I was and I was like, okay, now just add this one. Just and she's like, wait, white Tina? What? Oh, okay. Like we all we all had to make sense of it, and then then it made it. But it happened because I got called that, you know. Um, yes. <laughs> oh wait, sorry. I was saying no. Keep going. Keep going. Come back. But I just want to say that um, the charge was second generation girls. And we don't ever hear, we usually hear, hear the immigrant story, but like the, um, because we, I bet a lot of you, I'm not, but a lot of you are Americans. I'm trying to be an American. I'm not a citizen yet. Um, but like we're, or you're Americanized, even if you were born and maybe you were DACA recipient, but you're Americanized, right? And sometimes we're shamed for that. And your parents did the best they could to protect you, right? But then you're shamed for not being authentic enough or, I, I don't know, uh, is, are you Mexican? First generation, and that there's shame in that. And these girls that are Mex Mexican American don't speak Spanish. One had to learn Spanish from books because her mother didn't speak Spanish either. So that story, because we are going to be Latinos like that the more we are here. So yeah, we are. You know what I mean? The more generations, and, and we're gonna intermarry, and like you know, so it, uh, Spanish will not be one of the markers that define us, uh, define Latinidad. Religion is no longer. You know, so it's like, what does it mean to be a Latina in this country? You know. And I think it's an interesting story to share because my parents were this. I, my, my parents came from Cuba in 62 when they were 15, and they both still have thick Cuban accents, partly because I think they don't want to lose it, right? Yeah. But I remember very distinctly growing up, and my mom would be like, no, 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 don't say it like me. Say it like the woman on the TV. <laughs> because she was afraid. Yeah. Because she was afraid, and she wanted me to assimilate. And this is why I talk like this, right? <laughs> Uh, so I think that that's an important narrative that people don't really understand. The fear of immigrants when they come here to not want their children to be outsiders. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, we then feel like, ni de aquí, ni de allá, right? I'm not from here, I'm not from there. Where am I from? What is my American identity? And, you know, that's all stuff that we want to talk about. That's my sister's store's name. Ni de aquí, ni de allá. No, really? She oh, made that's this. so good. Anyway, side that's note, so sorry. Promotion. <laughs> Support. Well, we got about two minutes, and I want to get this last question in. Two minutes, sorry. 
Um, thank you very much for this panel. Um, I'm not a brown person. I have more of a yellowish hue. <laughs> um, but I'm very interested in hearing about, I'm very happy to hear about these writing rooms and writing teams um, where you embrace inclusion. And I'm very curious to know how you put these teams together, how you put these rooms together. How did you and these wonderful writers find each other? It's work to find the writers. It is work. And it's work that I'm committed to and Tanya's committed to. And I, it sounds like you guys are committed to, which is exciting. Uh, it's true that when we get the first, we're both at UTA and we went there. It's an agency. It's an right, agency. Right, and we went there and we said, you guys are the tastemakers. When you read the material, you are the tastemakers and you define what we see. And often when we are like, for my pilot, I was reading new writers and they always send you the white men first. They just do. And we have to say, you know, we have to say, like, we want women, we want people of color. So we try to create pipelines, right? Like, I'll teach at the university. I teach at Loyola Marymount. I haven't because I've been busy. But I was teaching for a long time. That's how I found Michelle Badillo. She was one of my students when she was 19 years old, and she was amazing. Thank you for and, that. And then you're welcome. <laughs> um, and Caroline Levitch. And, my, and then I also build a pipeline with my PAs and with my assistants. So my assistant is Korean-American, Suhi Chang. She's a badass. Uh, and then my other assistant is Ariana, who you used yeah. for a little while. I and <laughs> I gave her time for a little bit, and then she yeah. gave me back. Um, and then the Ned, uh, the Ned, which is, she's Cuban from, from Cuba. So these are, we're able to build a pipeline to start educating within our own, um, writers circles aside from the writers. So I literally went to write, I was looking for like a young queer Latina writer. And I said, Mike, I have a student. I've been mentoring her for four years. She's amazing. She has a writing partner. That's like this adorable sorority white girl. The two of them together make an incredible team. And I think cover both of the kids on the show. Will you read the material? And Mike Royce was such an incredible supporter that he said anything you want. Yes. And read the material and loved it. And they've been some of our most valuable writers. So we really have to search. And, you know, for me, I also feel like I'm not just going to hire somebody because their last name's Lopez. They have to be great writers. So sometimes the agents will send you the two Latin writers that they represent, but you don't respond to the material. So you have to dig and dig and dig, and that is what we have done. And now I think, I mean, Janine Brito, who is our writer this year, she's a she's Cuban and Icelandic. She's an ice cube. That's, <laughs> that's how she identifies. And queer and amazing. And queer and amazing. She reached out to, on, a, uh, on Twitter two years ago. And I kept up with her. You sent her to me. I sent her I to you. After. We, you we, back. yeah, we, and we kind of built a keep writing, keep writing, keep writing, keep rewriting, keep rewriting. And then she had written finally uh, over three years. She did the work. And then the latest sample felt ready. And so we hired her this year. On There's a show. flip side too, to uh, not every show is a writer's room show. Not every show has that, especially nowadays you're seeing. Uh, uh, Scott Frank, every episode, writer, directors, making every episode of a show, True Detective season one. My wife and I, Melissa Gilbert, uh, we are uh, developing nine episodes with uh, uh, two women that are married, a story of uh, a mob girl, true story. One of the girls is a real mob girl in 1976, and it's their story. We're developing it straight on with them. There's no writer's room. There, there never will be a writer's room, probably. Because they're writing each episode and completing each episode. They the had British, nine the way the British do it, right? The, yeah, and it'll be, and I'll probably direct all of them. We'll produce it and keep our overhead down. Because a writer's room can be exorbitant in expense, you know, if everybody's making a lot of money. And sadly, just to go back for one second, the reason they send the men first is they make the most money. And they get 10% of their money. So equality is changing, which is great. Our world is changing as far as... You know, uh, uh, all, all everybody being accepted um, and you can develop if you have a property, develop it one on one. Don't try to push it uphill and go to the networks. Maybe if you find a director who you like or a producer like Tommy Shlami uh, that wants to has uh, his own deal at uh, uh, AMC or FX, I think he's at go to him and they will. He ran the West Wing. Aaron Sorkin did not run the West Wing. Tommy Shlami ran the West Wing. Uh, Aaron wrote every word of just about every episode except for one in his four years, and he hasn't even seen that one yet. Uh, 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 he's like, there's no upside for it. If I see it and it's great, I'm screwed. And if I see it and I hate it, I'll be mad at myself for letting it happen. 
Uh, but uh, there's other routes to go other than the writer's room, which is the traditional route. If you get 22 or big orders, very important uh, to have a writer's room because you're up against it constantly. If your order's small and you can direct or you can team with a director, um, you can actually, with the uh, platforms that are out there today, you might have a better chance of expressing yourself clearly. I was just going to say, um, I remember I read an endless amount of uh, sample scripts. I stopped counting after 63. Um, but I remember when I read the sample from Lana Cho, who was one of the first writers that I hired, I literally, I've been reading and reading and reading. And after 15 minutes, I was like, holy shit. Uh, she had written this incredible kidnapping drama where it was some of the most terrifying first 15 pages I had read. And I called Mike Metavoy, who was uh, one of my executive producers, and said, I think I found uh, a writer. Uh, and you know, she came, she had a very interesting uh, perspective. We, we interviewed everyone, sometimes multiple times, trying to sort of find the right uh, combination of people. But it really, to me, came down to, uh, I, I feel like I knew in the first 15 pages, I knew like this was an excellent fit. And I will say that um, um, all the women we hired, they wrote some of the best thrillers I've ever read. And I was like, I want to make this show <laughs> next. Um, yeah. So... Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. I could talk to all of you for the next 15 hours straight. Um, but I know everyone has more things to get to today. So thank you for being here. And we'll see you next year. Thank you all for tuning in to this live release of our ATX Festival panel. Please come back and listen to the variety of topics coming your way from writer's rooms to reunions to industry insider issues. This podcast was made possible by our partners, Matica Productions and the Forever Dog Network. For more information on us and our podcast projects, please visit atxfestival.com and atvxp.com slash podcast. Next year's festival dates are June 6th through 9th, 2019 and passes are available now.